0: Hello and welcome to this episode of Inside Briefing, the podcast from the Institute for Government. I'm Hannah White. Scotland has a new First Minister. Hamza Youssef edged out Kate Forbes in the race to succeed Nicola Sturgeon as the SNP's leader, and he's now been sworn in to follow her in leading the Scottish Government. So what's in Yusuf's intro? How does he follow the long-serving Sturgeon? And what comes next in the battle for Scottish independence? We'll then switch from Hollywood to Westminster and take stock of how Rishi Sunak is faring as the Commons rises for Easter recess. He's had some successes. The progress on the Windsor framework, for example, stands out, but there's still plenty of sticking points ahead, not least over pay deals for public sector workers. But things could be worse. Over in France, Emmanuel Macron's attempts to raise the retirement age are not going down well. We'll speak to an IFG associate who's over from Paris to tell us what's going on. I'll be joined throughout by IFG Deputy Director Emma Norris. Hi Emma. Hi Hannah. And I'm delighted that Hannah Roger, the chief reporter at the Sunday Mail and former Westminster editor for The Herald, joins us too. Hi Hannah. Hi Hannah. This is going to be confusing, I think. Yep. <laughs> so let's start with the events in Scotland, where Hamza Youssef has become the new First Minister and the first British Asian to hold the post. Akash Pound, IFG Senior Fellow and expert on all things devolution, joins us now. Hi Akash. Hi Hannah. Hannah, can I start with you? For our non-Scotland experts, can you tell us a little bit about the new First Minister?
1: Well, Humza Yusuf is interesting because, you know, to, to people like me and my colleagues who follow Scottish politics very closely, you know, we're all very familiar with Humza, but really, I don't think the general public know that much about him. And so we've seen with him winning the leadership contest and becoming first minister, that he's really trying from the get-go to get across his, you know, his personality and a bit more about who he is, um, not just as a politician, but, you know, as a a human being, I suppose. Um, So one of the things he did in his speech when he won the, the contest he spoke about his um, upbringing, his family, his grandparents moving to Scotland as immigrants and working in sort of fairly you know working class jobs. Um, I think one of them worked on on the buses and another one um, I think p- potentially worked in a factory um, and you know talking about how proud that they would be of him you know becoming first minister. And then he also spoke a little bit about, um, you know, his parents. I suppose he, he spoke about the stereotypical view of, you know, Asian parents who are trying to push their kids to be solicitors or dentists or doctors or pharmacists. And he sort of went against the grain by asking, you know, or, or saying that he wanted to go into politics. So that's kind of what we know about him uh, at the moment, he's got um, a, a three-year-old daughter and I think a, a twelve or thirteen-year-old daughter. Uh, he lives in Dundee, um, and yeah, he's he's held some really sort of senior positions within the Scottish government. He's had transport, justice, and laterally health. Um, yeah, so that that's kind of what we know about him so far. He's also, you know, the youngest first minister that we've had. He's only thirty-seven years old. So I'm sure we'll learn more about him and his personality as he settles into the job.
0: And was this the expected result?
1: Well, yes and no. So the problem with the contest was the SNP membership have never been tested in this way before. So the last time there was a leadership election was, I think, about 20 years ago. The party has ballooned since then. Um, they've got seventy thousand members now, and there was never any test of, of their views really in in that time in terms of you know what they thought on on issues that weren't about independence. So what was very surprising was the number of votes that Kate Forbes received because she was really heavily criticised at the beginning of the contest for her views on equal marriage and um, having children outside of marriage. Uh, she she kind of famously said that she wouldn't have voted for, for um, gay people to be allowed to marry if she had been in government at the time.
0: And there was discussion at the time, wasn't there, about whether she was going to withdraw, I seem to recall.
1: Yeah, there was some discussion, but, you know, fair play to her, she did kind of hold her ground and she said, you know, these are my beliefs and my views, but I don't impose them on others. And she ended up coming away with 48% of the votes. So I think that kind of tells us quite a lot about the SNP membership and their views, even though Hamza had the backing of the majority of elected SNP politicians. Kate Forbes has obviously done something to appeal
0: to the membership. As you say, that's really interesting. Emma, what did you make of the result?
2: I think, you know, exactly as Hannah said, it's a really interesting um, insight into the views of the SNP party membership. I think also, what's interesting is, you know, in lots of ways, um, he was the continuity candidate. He wasn't endorsed um, by Sturgeon, but he he was endorsed by lots of um, SNP politicians and um, but yet yeah, the margin of victory was actually relatively narrow. I think much narrower than people was, were expecting. 52-48, the traditional-, traditional ratio again. <laughs> um, and I think that really shows that he, everybody knows that one of the challenges ahead is how he's going to deal with the, independent, the quest for independence. I think the other one is, you know, how does he go about or does he go about trying to reunite the SNP? He had a first opportunity there to offer Forbes a, a promotion of some kind. He decided to instead offer a demotion and she's rejected that. So that's possibly going to kind of further fuel that division. And I think it was Stephen Bush who was writing this week that, you know, all this disagreement within the SNP, it's actually quite unusual. And there's been lots of kind of division and disagreement behind the scenes, but they've been very good actually as a party at maintaining public unity, unlike uh, lots of the Westminster parties um, more recently. And so I think, you know, a, a big question kind of on the back of this result is, Is this era of political infighting in the SNP going to continue or or is um, Youssef going to be able to um, bring people back together um, in the kind of quest to to, to fight Labour rather than each other?
0: Hannah, just picking up on what Emma said there about Mm. his choice of cabinet, what what do you read into the appointments that he's making?
1: Well, I think um, the appointments have been quite interesting. So obviously his opposition... Uh, leaders are, are being very quick to say you know oh this is the same as Nicola Sturgeon this is continuity cabinet from the continuity candidate but actually when you look at it um, I don't think that's a very fair fair observation so you've got uh, 15 women and 13 men in, in the full sort of ministerial lineup um, you've definitely got some familiar faces but you also have some of the new or, or less experienced members and you also have some of the, the sort of next generation who've been appointed both to cabinet roles and also to the junior ministerial roles and I think actually that's that's a probably pretty healthy thing for the SNP because as um, Emma was saying about under Nicola Sturgeon there wasn't really a lot of, of discussion and uh, I guess publicly, sort of disagreements or um, any sort of controversy, and we have had that under Hamza, but also I think that that's healthy, and there needs to be an element of that for the party to to grow. And I think also under Nicola Sturgeon, there was she was very much surrounded by older guard, experienced, uh, long-serving ministers. Which of course is 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 great, but then we have this problem of there was no succession plan. And also you have maybe other people who are talented within the party who haven't been given those opportunities to, to grow and to learn how to do the job and to become better at it. Whereas I think under Hamza, he's given some of those people opportunities to step up and really sort of of learn. A bit more about how to do the job, which I think is important.
0: That's that's really interesting. Akash, you've written for us this week on three things that are in Andrew Yusuf's intray. Um obviously we've talked
3: about party management, but what else would you pick out? He does need to set out some kind of believable, um, credible route map. Towards independence in the long term, um, just because that does remain such a such a key issue for so many of his party members and and wider supporters, but in our view. Um, he's probably right in um, dialing down the expectations of that coming anytime soon. I mean, the way he talked about it in the campaign was was a shift. I mean, despite all the talk of him being a continuity candidate, um, was a shift from from the, the Sturgeon idea of a de facto referendum at the next general election. Instead, he's talking about making the case over the long term, um, shifting up the civic campaign and and trying to reach a point where there is clear. not just a a narrow majority even, but maybe sort of 60% plus support for independence. And eventually, perhaps Westminster will recognise that they have to uh, bow to the wishes, so to speak, of of Scotland's voters. But but in the meantime, I think he he absolutely will need to focus on domestic issues, the NHS, the state of the economy and education. I mean, all areas where the the opinion polls are clear that, that Scottish voters don't think The scottish government is doing a particular good job and and he, he really needs to make progress on those kind of issues um before the next election um and then finally we talked about whether there's an opportunity here for a reset strengthened relationship uh, or at least sort of less hostile relationship at best, um, at least between the Scottish government and the UK government. And there I think it's quite interesting, you know, Rishi Sunak certainly compared to his two predecessors um, is at least prioritizing Communication with the devolved governments. He he made a point of, of phoning, um, well Nicola Sturgeon when he was first appointed as prime minister, and then Hamza Yusuf this week when Hamza Yusuf was was appointed as as first minister. Um, I think potentially, if the Scottish government does now shift its focus away from the constitutional question. And onto to domestic matters there basically there may be more of a an opportunity to to work in partnership on you know a lot of these big economic questions that that absolutely cross border cross borders and um, are best dealt with in partnership
0: and Hannah I mean looking ahead to the general election, which uh, we're anticipating next year. What sort of position do you think this puts the SNP in, and how uh, how will Labour now be thinking about their approach in Scotland?
1: Well, I think you know it's going to make the the next general election really, really interesting in Scotland because the SNP has been so used to, you know, sweeping the board when it comes to. I, I remember the twenty was it 2015 general election where they got 56 or yeah that's terrible I can't can't remember the exact <laughs> numbers but they they got an insane number of MPs and there was that sort of classic photograph of Nicola Sturgeon standing in front of all the MPs behind the the fourth road bridge and um you know I think the SNP has been pretty fortunate since then they have seen you know a decline in, in some of their their number, but there's still a significant number of SNP MPs. But, you know, that was under the era of Nicola Sturgeon, who, I keep saying this, but it's because it's it really is incredible. Nicola Sturgeon is the most popular political party leader ever, not just in Scotland, but in the UK. Um, when she left office, she had a, a positive net positive rating, whereas all the other leaders had negative ratings. And I think, you know, Hamza Youssef coming in fairly, you know, he's not as well known as Nicola Sturgeon, certainly not as popular if we go from what the polls are saying.
2: I think probably the challenge for Labour is just, you know, avoiding focusing too heavily on the union because we know that, you know, if Labour is going to kind of regain a significant number of seats in Scotland, it has to win those votes from the SNP. Um, so I suppose, you know, really capitalising on that SNP inviting, but also focusing on on the other issues that matter to people, cost of living, public services, rather than the future of the union is probably going to be the opportunity for, for Labour in Scotland.
0: Akash, thanks so much for joining us today. But before you go, what, how would you sum up Nicola Sturgeon's legacy for Scotland?
3: Well, she hasn't got the legacy she, of course, dreamed of, which was being the the, the first minister to lead Scotland to independence. Um, not for want of trying, um, but she's governed through a period of, well, quite quite extraordinary um, single party dominance. Of Scottish politics, she obviously takes a lot of credit for that. Her own popularity remains um, even today um, but you know the s n p position does feel a bit uh, fragile now for the reasons we 've just heard. I think it's going to be very difficult for for hamza Youssef to 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 maintain that kind of level of um, of 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 success electorally um, at a time when on some of the big domestic issues. There's quite a lot of evidence of of dissatisfaction on the NHS and and the state of the economy and so on. So um, yeah, I think um, she's obviously been a a hugely charismatic and and successful leader of Scotland, but I don't think she's left her successor with with a particularly easy task.
0: Let's turn our attention now to Westminster, which for once played second fiddle to Holyrood in the headlines this week. MPs are heading off for recess, Sunak is seen off a possible Brexit rebellion, and he's watched Boris Johnson endure a tough session with MPs on the Privileges Committee. Sunak's also survived the post-budget pitfalls that so often follow these big fiscal announcements. So, Hannah, I mean, he's got every right to be pretty pleased, hasn't he, or are we missing something?
1: Um, I think, you know he's he can be content perhaps i mean he's not he's not caused a you know economic crisis or <laughs> <laughs> anything like <Low> that bar. <laughs> yes um but you know there are still there are still issues i think the cost of living crisis is still affecting everyone um and you know there isn't an easy fix to that unfortunately and i don't think we saw um a solution which helps everyone in the budget. I think there were some controversial things in the budget as well, um, you know, particularly around sort of uh, the bed or, or perceived benefits for those who are actually the wealthiest. Um, but you know, I don't think I don't think he's done too badly. I think the the, the big issues kind of ahead are still sort of issues to do with strikes and pay talks that's really something that that is continuing and isn't really you know there hasn't been a a significant amount of movement i guess on that and it's going to be a continued issue um as we go forward and as the cost of living situation kind of deepens for everyone I think
2: that I mean definitely he's you know Sunak's got through this 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 difficult period, but I think one of the biggest questions for him is can he actually deliver what he has set out to because that's you know what the next year is about actually banking some things ahead of the election and he set out his five you know relatively low ambition pledges at the start of the year on inflation and, and NHS waiting lists growth and of course small boats and if we look at what's happening there you know the illegal um, immigration legislation it's littered with implementation problems. It's based on the idea of deterrence, which has never been proven to work. And we know that the bill's going to get in lots of trouble in the Lords. The Prime Minister himself this week poured cold water on um, the Home Secretary's idea that the first Rwanda flight might take off this summer. So it feels like lots of this is more about signalling than policies or legislation that are actually likely to deliver change on some of the, the pledges Sunak has made. And I think the question is, you know, is that enough? Is having some of those fights publicly on issues that Sunak has made promises on and he thinks the public cares about is that going to be enough to get him over the line when it comes to an election? Or does he actually need to deliver something more solid than that?
0: And Emma, today uh, we we're recording on Thursday uh, has been loosely termed Green Day. Um, you've done a lot of our thinking about net zero and how UK government makes progress towards that target. Is the green agenda something where you think the government is is going to achieve some of that delivery you're talking about? Well, I mean,
2: as you say, today's the day that the government is supposed to have, have revealed you know, this exciting new set of green policies that are going to help us meet our climate change goals. I mean, from a brief look of what, uh, what's been announced, I wouldn't say it looks terribly impressive. There's lots of re-announcements, so policies um, and existing commitments and consultations, no new <laughs> proper money, um, which lots of people were hoping for. I guess on some of the things we might have expected to see, there's there's very little um, new for offshore wind. There was nothing on lifting the ban on onshore wind, which lots of people were expecting. And that was despite the rebels winning a, a consultation on, on that at the end of last year. And they seem to have watered down targets on electric vehicle production too. So quite a lot of disappointment in there the biggest challenge is the lack of new spending. I mean, we knew that this was going to be nothing like the US's Inflation Reduction Act. But even in areas where we know they're crying out for investment like insulation, there wasn't much there. I I think if we're going to point to something positive, though, um, there was some progress on great British nuclear, you know, the the body that's charged with kind of reviving the British nuclear industry. It was announced, but then it stalled under Johnson. You know, maybe this is a sign, actually, that the machinery of government changes that soon made creating the department for energy security and net zero has actually created a bit more capacity to work up some of the ideas that were begun under johnson into kind of serious policy um so there's there's some some kind of positive news there i suppose
0: and and what would you say we know about the extent to which uh, the net zero agenda is a priority for sunak as you say he made those machinery of government changes uh but have we got any other signals that this is something he's really wanting to pursue?
2: Well, I mean, the machinery of government changes suggest it is a priority and that he wanted to get something done on it. The five pledges didn't kind of outright specify the green agenda, but it's in there within growth. On the other hand, it's worth saying that Green Day today is not something that government has done spontaneously because it wants to get out a raft of green policies. It was legally obliged by the end of March to update its strategy for, for reaching the net zero goal because uh, a court last year found that the plans were incomplete and lack sufficient detail to meet the government's obligations under the, the Climate Change Act. So, you know, it was a legal requirement to, to do to do Green Day. But I, look, I think it's hard to know at the moment. Um, I don't think it's a top priority for Sunak. I think clearly small boats, public services are bigger priorities, but that's as you would expect. Um, But there are some signs that he wants to make um, some progress on net zero, I think.
0: Hannah, talking of green issues, can you tell us what the deposit return scheme is and why it could be a problem for UK intergovernmental relations?
1: The Scottish government want to bring in the deposit return scheme by the 16th of August this year, whereas the UK government have said that they are looking to roll out a similar scheme by in 2025. So the, the sort of premise of the scheme is anytime you buy a drinks glass bottle or a can of fizzy juice or whatever, you keep the can or bottle, bring it back to the shop and you get a 20 pence refund. Um, so it all sounds you know, pretty straightforward. But the issue comes when you've got retailers or producers, as they're called, um, producers of these drinks. They're having to to buy different barcodes, different labels for the products that are going to Scotland, and a different set of barcodes and labels for those that are going to England. Um, you know, there's small businesses who feel as if they are not being represented in the sort of or by the, the body uh, or the company that's been set up to administer the scheme. Um, and then you've got the, the green minister, Lorna Slater, who, you know, whether she means to or not, is definitely giving off the impression that she's just, you know, ploughing ahead with this scheme and not really listening to the concerns of, you know, small businesses and smaller producers which ironically are the types of of companies that the green party would particularly be in support of usually and these are the ones that are saying you know we are going to be losing out but the big corporations are the ones that will you know be able to manage all this and it won't affect them financially um so there's there's a bit of pressure on that just now and um you know there's been sort of calls for the scottish government to pause their scheme and basically wait and do a UK-wide scheme. Uh, and, and so far, they don't seem to be keen to do that. But then there's also the issue of um, kind of legal, legal ability to do the scheme. So the Scottish government had to apply for an exemption to the UK government's Internal Markets Act, which after some toing and flowing, ing emerged that they hadn't actually done so. So they did that. I think in February. It's going to take maybe four to five months for the, for a decision to be made, um, and it's potentially well from from the briefings from sources that I I've spoken to. It's a very high bar to get an exemption to this internal market act. So therefore, all this planning, preparation, finances, um, jobs that have been you know created as a result of this scheme may all. Go to waste because they might not be legally able to do the scheme in Scotland uh, before the UK government does their UK-wide scheme. So it's all—it's all just a bit of a mess,
0: really. Yeah, very much sounds like post-Brexit uh, internal market teething yes. problems of test case uh, in some ways mm. for that system. Emma, we should stop and ask where Labour are in all this um, uh, on this green agenda. Do you feel that Keir Starmer's own agenda has, or approach to them has shifted in response to what Rishi Sunak's doing or are Labour really more making the weather on this stuff?
2: I mean, I'm not sure on on Green thing specifically, but I think it's an interesting week to see where Starmer is shifting and where he's staying the same. I mean, on on the one hand, you can see him wanting to hammer home the same message to the public that he has for some time that the Labour Party has changed under his leadership. You know, they had um, the kind of the, the, the big discussion about whether Corbyn was going to be allowed to stand again as a, as a Labour candidate. You know, the NEC um, supported Starmer's motion to block that. So, you know, this is a big, you know, the party has changed moment. Um, on the other hand, of course, you know, Starmer is trying to set out where Labour is is different um, to what SUNAC offers. You know, we've talked about SUNAC's kind of five relatively um, narrow promises. Starmer's response has been to do, I think, much kind of bigger vision stuff. We've got five big missions for the country. I think the challenge, though, is whilst that, feels like a bigger vision um, than than Sunak has set out. The detail is really missing. And, you know, everyone's been saying this for a while. When is Labour going to actually put some detail behind the kind of the headlines and and, and take childcare as a case in point? Labour have been signalling for really quite some time now that they're going to do something big on childcare. This is a really important area for them. Didn't get there, didn't really offer much more than that. And then the Conservatives came in and actually outlined really quite a comprehensive um, set of reforms. That feels like quite a big political mistake, signalling that it's a priority but not filling in the the kind of space and and letting the Conservatives get in there. They haven't had a huge amount to say on immigration, on drugs policy, very much kind of rowing in behind the Conservatives. So I think you know, Starmer has started to set himself apart in lots of ways from Sunak, but in in rough sketches and um, in headlines, and indeed through some reactive work, I think people are going to want more soon, and Labour need to provide more soon on the detail about what makes Labour distinctive and what do they tangibly have to offer in this, you know, year before a general
0: election. Hannah, sw- switching back to Scotland, um, how is Rishi Sunak? seen there. His predecessors weren't particularly popular. Uh, how is he going down?
1: Well, he's a Tory, so um, <laughs> the sort of usual caveat applies in that the Tories are are not hugely popular in Scotland, but I do think definitely he's seen as more dependable uh, than, than Boris Johnson. Boris Johnson was exceedingly unpopular um, up here. But again, I I I think people are, you know, how to put it, kind of not not fussed about Rishi Sunak because he hasn't really made much of an effort in Scotland. He's not really done that many visits. He's not. He doesn't seem to be engaging too much with the Scottish uh, Conservatives. You know, whether that's a good thing or not, I'm not sure, because I think under Boris it was seen as, you know, he was kind of trying to meddle a bit too much with the Scottish Conservatives, and then there was a bit of a row between him and Douglas Ross, and it was all very sort of fractious. So, you know, he, he's keeping a sort of a distance, I suppose, from from Scotland, it seems, and from the Scottish Conservatives, and letting them sort of get on with it. And I guess as well we've had, obviously, the last six weeks anyway, there's been uh, a tension elsewhere um, in terms of the the smp leadership contest so maybe he's not wanted to to uh, interfere with that but yeah i mean i would say he's probably going down better than boris but it wouldn't be hard but he's not hugely popular because he's a conservative
0: <laughs> fair enough hannah emma thank you so much for joining us today thank you thank you Now, let's end by leaping across the channel for a look at events in France, because for one day only, Georgina Wright, Director of the Europe Programme at the Institut Montaigne and an IFG Associate, is over in London. Hi, Georgie. How are you?
4: Hi, Hannah. I'm really well, thank you. It's so lovely to be back.
0: It's great to have you here on the pod. So, King Charles' visit to France was cancelled this week. What is going on?
4: Well, that's a very, very good question. (laughs) I don't know how long we have to answer it, but essentially it feels sometimes that we're 1789 all over again with people in the streets rioting. I hadn't quite realised just um, how much... Writing was part of French DNA and that actually there's a level of tolerance for it, which is just um, quite, quite surprising. But essentially what's happened is the French government has forced through a bill uh, that would reform the pension system. Um, and they did that without asking MPs to vote on it. Um, and this is just, I think it's been sort of added on to a number of things that have really irritated a majority of French society. And so now people are out of the street saying this is enough." We want reform and we want change.
0: And what was that? Did they not put it to MPs because they thought that MPs wouldn't pass it, or what was the rationale?
4: So depends who you who you speak to. But um, essentially, what happened was Macron, when he was elected um, uh, during his second campaign, he said, "I'm going to reform the pension system. Our public spending is out of control. We need to do this, and this is going to be one of my priorities." So he. You know, he said it. Everyone knew it was coming. Um, The French government worked on a bill. um, They introduced it in Parliament. There were lots of debates. And what you hear um, ministers say is, well, actually, Parliament just wasn't ready to engage with the text at all. They sort of refused to even um, uh, have a a proper debate, a constructive debate. Uh, We still tried. We had hours and hours. It It then went to the Senate. The Senate proposed a number of amendments that were accepted. And then when it came back, we just knew that there was no constructive environment at all. So we had no other choice but to force it through. And if uh, MPs really were unhappy with it, they could just present a no-confidence vote and then that would bring down the government and bring down uh, the bill. But in effect, um, you know, there are many parties in Parliament, they don't all want to gang up together. Um, And so everyone's saying, well, you knew it was going to get through um, and it's not fair for us to debate it at length and then not get a chance to vote on it.
0: And how bad is this for Macron? Does he... Would he have sort of priced this in, or, and it's just something he needs to get through, or, or is this actually? I mean, it looks it looks troubling from this side of the yeah. of the channel.
4: I mean, it's troubling looking at it in France, to be honest. Um, I think uh, it's quite interesting that all the anger uh, seems to not really be about the reform itself. Um, and actually, yes, you've got sort of a quite a large minority of people who are against it, but overall, people, uh, uh you know, understand that they can't work until they're 62 and they might have to work a bit longer. I mean, when you listen to that over here, it seems completely <laughs> mad. Yeah. Um, but, but so they understand that it really is the way that the government went about it. And even though the government is the prime minister, Elie Bon. Um, who heads up the government, all the anger is directed at Macron. Um, and and Macron knew because he never got the majority he needed uh, in Parliament that it was going to be much harder to get stuff through. Um, but he could have dissolved Parliament and called for elections. He didn't do that because he thought he'd have <laughs> an even smaller majority. Um, and also there was, I, I was speaking to some of his MPs um, who were saying, well, actually, you know, if this, pension reform hadn't gone through the markets would have reacted and i was just a bit surprised by that because i thought what was silicon valley bank and credit suisse and this isn't really the time and also the reform is so small that in effect i don't think it would have had that much so there's a lot of con- contrasting views um but macron um is really facing um kind of huge. that you know, decided you just don't seem to trust him at all. And he still has, what, four years ahead of him. Uh, so we'll see what happens, whether he decides to have a shake-up in government. Um, but he's going to have to do a lot of groveling, I think.
0: Oh, that's what I was going to ask. I mean, what's going to happen next? Can you look into your crystal ball for us? And and how important is this um, for Macron?
4: So I, I'm not a pensions reform expert. What I have found out is that it's a little bit like the NHS in the UK. Um, so someone said to me yesterday, is it like a sacred cow? And I was like, no, I think it's more like a sacred goat. And, you know, it's a bit smaller, <laughs> but but it still really matters to, to, to people in France. And they think we really like our pensions reform. So any attempt to change it was going to be problematic. Um, it it looks like he's just going to continue. Um, I mean, it doesn't affect him. It affects the government. Um, Elisabeth Elizabeth, Bonn has already called um, all parties. Um, she met several times than this week. She's going to do so next week to try and figure out. They've already promised they won't force uh, any bills through unless their budget so still, but not for anything else. There's a big immigration bill that has to go through. And they've said that they wouldn't force it through. Um, so I think there'll have to be a number of concessions and just um, basically uh, a public uh, appeal to say, you know, we, we get your anger, we'll, we'll listen to it. Uh, but for Macron, I think he's going to have to spend much more time on domestic issues, which isn't great. Like he's going to... China uh, with the European Commission President uh, next week. Um, And then he's got a number of other kind of international um, summits and visits that are planned. But he's going to have to spend a lot of time now in France, because what we see is that this has really uh, basically benefited the far right. um, And no one really knows who will replace him if he's preparing sort of a legacy candidate. It will be interesting to see if his ministers in the French government actually support him or whether they break rank because they're thinking also at the next presidential election. So there are lots of things about internal uh, domestic politics, and he's going to have to spend more time on that, I think.
0: Very interesting. And uh, while you're here, uh not to be uh obsessed with the UK view of things, but how are Macron's team uh viewing Rishi Sunak and and where we've got to uh with Brexit?
4: I think they're they're really pleased. Um to be honest, and I've said this before on the podcast, um you know, French had switched off from Brexit long before negotiations mm. um, been concluded. It Just wasn't really something they were talking about, um, and also they were quite happy to let the Brexit side of stuff, whether it's Northern Ireland Protocol or you know amendments to the trade agreement, to the up to the Commission. Um, but yes, relationship the relationship between the two countries has been really bad. It wasn't fun being British in Paris, I can tell you. (laughs) Um, But um, it seems to really, we have turned the page. And I think that that there's just so much more enthusiasm about, and and frankly reckoning that we've got the two largest military and, and the only two nuclear powers in Europe. It makes sense for them to be working together to guarantee European security and uh, and beyond, and and I think they do really. What I hear is they were very impressed. And Macron had a one-hour conversation or a one and a half-hour conversation with Rishi Sunak with no advisors in the room. Um, and you could see during the, the press conference that they they just you know they feel like they're the same. And the so chemistry the, the, was there. The chemistry was <laughs> there. Um, but I think people also know that there's an important election, and we don't know who will be you know whether Rishi Sunak will remain prime minister or whether we'll have a change.
0: Georgie, thank you so much for being with us. And thanks also to Akash Pound, Emma Norris and Hannah Roger too. And of course, thanks to everyone for listening at home. Remember, you can find all our podcasts at iTunes, Spotify and all major platforms, including a bonus edition of this podcast. I sat down for a fascinating interview with Emily Maitlis, co-host of the News Agents podcast and formerly of Newsnight. Emily's podcast is topping the charts. So please leave our on a good review so that we can keep up. As always, check out our website for all our latest analysis, comments and reports, and all the information you need about our upcoming events. MPs are heading out of Westminster for Easter, but here at the IFG we're sticking around for a little longer. We'll see you next Thursday.